Now, we were looking at <clears throat> um, passages which uh, uh, or events introduced by uh, fulfillment clauses. <clears throat> we finished with Matthew 13, 35, and I, I actually want you to continue, uh, even though I know it, uh, it's a little tedious, uh, but continue flipping with me through the Gospels here and look with me at Matthew 27, 9 through 10. 27, 9 through 10. Matthew 27, verses 9 through 10. I don't know if you've ever tried to study this passage. Uh, if you have, you've probably been a little frustrated because to me, this is probably, besides the one that says this was to fulfill. Uh, the scriptures that he was to be a Nazarene. I'm not sure about where that comes from, but also this one, we know where it comes from, uh, but it's very difficult. Um, it is uh, from two or three events from Isaiah, Zechariah 11 and 12 and 13, Jeremiah 18, 2 and 32, 6 to 9, where uh, a field is bought, in one place it's called the potter's field, uh, 30, um, uh, 32 pieces of, uh, or 30 pieces of silver is spent. In another case, it's like 17 pieces. <clears throat> but these are events in the life of the prophet, Jeremiah and Zechariah. And they become typological of what's going on um, with uh, the situation with the um, Judas in the potter's field. <clears throat> I'm not going to try to explain that today because that would probably take an hour lecture. And I, uh, <clears throat> I don't want to spend that time. But again, if you want to read a good explanation of it, Craig Blomberg, who did our section on the use of the Old Testament in Matthew, has a good explanation of it. So <clears throat> I'm going to leave it to say, this is clearly not direct prophecy in those passages. Jeremiah 32, 19, and Zechariah 11. It's talking about events in the lives of those prophets, and they become, notice how it's introduced. This was to, that which, that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled saying, now you'll notice it doesn't say Zechariah, okay? But Zechariah is clearly included here. Um, why it doesn't say Zechariah is another question, which also needs uh, answering. So, um, but it's clear that Zechariah is included. Um, now, let's look also then at um, Matthew 13, 14 to 15. Move back to Matthew 13 again. Matthew 13, 14 to 15. Speaking to those who could not understand Christ's parables, Christ said, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says you'll keep on hearing, but will not understand. You keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear, etc." <clears throat> that was an imperative to Isaiah to harden the people. In fact, if you, if you read verses 9 and 10, uh, <clears throat> he says, um, uh, let their eyes not see and let their ears not hear. They're actually justices in Hebrew, which are imperatives and with imperatival force. And so 
the command is to the people, don't hear and don't see. And then in verse 10 is the command to Isaiah, make fat the heart of his people, cause them not to see. So it's, a, it's one of the hardest passages in all the Old Testament. I mean, when people preach on Isaiah 6, you don't hear verses um, 7 through 13 preached because it's extremely theologically difficult. It deals with theodicy. How can God command people to be blind? And how can Isaiah command them to be blind? Can you imagine if in a Sunday school or before you're going to preach, uh, uh, you had some vision that said, now, when you get up, I want you to tell the congregation, be blind. Be spiritually dull. I think you uh, think that was a vision from the devil and uh, try to uh, move to a, a scripture that would be encouraging to encourage you before you preach. Uh, <clears throat> that this was a true vision. And uh, if you're interested in, in uh, my understanding of that theological problem, I've written a book called We Become Like What We Worship. And uh, the first major chapter of it is uh, an interpretation of Isaiah chapter 6 and verses 7 to 13 and how we deal with that problem. The brief answer is this. Having eyes but not seeing and ears but not hearing, um, I, I think that's organically connected to uh, uh, Psalm 115 where it says the idols of the nation are gold and silver. They have eyes that can't see, ears that can't hear. Uh, a mouth that can't speak, etc. And it says, those who make them will become like them, uh, even those who worship them. So what's going on is that God is punishing Israel for their intractable idolatry. idolatry. How does he punish them? By making them like the idols they love. You love idols? I'm going to make you like the idols. Not that they become petrified like Lot's wife, but they become spiritually as inanimate as those idols that they worship. And uh, so, um, at any rate, that's the, the brief <coughs> background of that passage. And I think here, actually, the same thing's going on. They're becoming as spiritually inanimate as their idols. Well, wait a minute. They didn't have idols in Jesus' time. Gentiles only had idols. Well, it was their tradition. Uh, as Mark uh, chapter 7 says, you've replaced God's word with your tradition. and repeats it. Uh, the living word. <clears throat> so... Uh, but here, basically, what uh, uh, Isaiah's commanded and will occur in his ministry is going to happen again. And in fact, the word uh, for playrato here, uh, this is uh, uh, being fulfilled. It's, it's not um, just the uh, passive of uh, playrato. It is anna playrato. Uh, Matthew Gundry, uh, uh, Robert Gundry thinks that uh, that's intentional because Anna has the idea of again, it's fulfilled again, uh, or typologically fulfilled. Of course, there might be a concept of double fulfillment. Um, I don't see that that much. I think here we probably have uh, Jesus being the epitome of the prophet, i.e. the prophet Isaiah, he pointed to Jesus and uh, the situation at um, uh, Isaiah's time is now uh, finding uh, a um, reduplication at the time of Jesus. So, so uh, what happened with Isaiah foreshadows what will happen with Jesus. <clears throat> now, um, turn with me now to John. We're going to look at some passages in John. <clears throat> 
John 13. Chapter 13, verse 18. Jesus is saying in verse 17, if you know these things, you're blessed. If you do them, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I've chosen. But it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Now, the last part of that verse introduced, notice, by a, uh, a formula of fulfilling scripture. It is... Uh, from Psalm 41, 9, where David's, speaking of David's trusted uh, counselor, Ahithophel, <clears throat> and now that is seen as a foreshadowing of this trusted disciple, uh, apparently trusted, uh, Judas, who has um, lifted up his heel against Jesus. So this, this uh, pattern between Ahithophel and David is going, it foreshadows the pattern uh, between the greater David and, and the greater traitor. Uh, John 17, 12 continues this. And in, in John 17, 12, it says, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you've given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And so he's referring back at that point to chapter 13 and verse 18. Now, we've, uh, if you look at 19, 24, Um, we have a reference now to Psalm 22, which uh, in the psalm, it is describing uh, the persecution of David, an event of persecution. So in verse 24, they said, that, therefore, let us not tear his garment, but cast lots for it to decide whose it will be, that the scripture might be fulfilled. They devoted, divided my outer garments among them, and from uh, my clothing they cast lots. So you see that the situation in David's life is seen as fulfilled. This event is fulfilled in what they're doing with Christ. It's event fulfillment. It's a, a foreshadowing uh, event. Um, and uh, likewise, um, in fact, if you, by the way, if you notice uh, Luke 23, 34, keep, keep your something, a marker in John 19, but Switch over to Luke 23, 34. In Luke 23, in verse 34, that Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And then it says, and they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. Again, uh, verse 34 is from Psalm 22, 18, the same psalm that was introduced by a scriptural formula. Notice it's not now. Now, does that mean that Luke has a different theology than John? I doubt it. I think one passage, we're, we're going to let these passages interpret one another. I think that's probably uh, a, a better procedure. Uh, and I, I think you don't have to have a scriptural formula to have a type. Okay. Now, that's the telltale sign. But if you find a passage like this, it doesn't have a formula, and you find another the same passage elsewhere, and it does, then probably you can conclude the passage that doesn't have the formula also is understood as a fulfillment. Okay, so be aware of that. Um, <clears throat> as we come back to John, then, we're asking you to stay, John 19, 28. 
Um, Jesus is at the cross. He said, knowing that all things had already been fulfilled in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I am thirsty. There we go again. Uh, but that's from Psalm 69 and verse 21, speaking of the oppression of uh, the psalmist who was David. Um, same thing. The oppression of the psalmist comes foreshadowing of the oppression of the Messiah, in this case, at the cross in uh, chapter uh, 19, <laughs> verse 36 as well, which we just looked at. For these things came to pass, the scripture might be fulfilled, not a bone can be broken. Again, an event introduced by a scriptural formula. Uh, I'm not going to take time to talk about that. But notice, uh, let's go to Acts. This is not just true in the Gospels. Acts chapter 1 and verse 16. And uh, just to try to preserve my voice a little bit here, can we get somebody to read Acts 1 and verses 16 to 21? Who, who would volunteer to, to do that? Yes, sir. Wait, Acts uh, chapter 1, begin at verse 16, read all the through, way through verse 21. Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled, in which the Holy Spirit was spoken long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as God referred to as a Jew. He was one of our number and shared in our misery. With the pregnancy of Caesar Augustus, Judas walked afield, where he heard headlong. His body burst open and all of his excrements spilled out. Everyone was loose with their lovers. And they called that field in the language of Akel and Bab, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted and let there be no one to dwell in it. And may another take up his place in Israel. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time. With Jesus to live their lives, beginning the time when Jesus was taken up on us. For one of these must become a witness with us. Good. Thank you so much. All right. You'll notice this narrative begins in verse 16 with the formula. Scripture had to be fulfilled, uh, foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas. And then uh it describes uh, Judas' uh, final end, and then um, talks about the field and in which uh, he was buried. Um, and then verse 20 says, for, to explain his end, his destruction, it's written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate, that no man dwell in it, and his office another man take. Now, uh, the first part of verse 20 is from Psalm 69, 25. Uh, and the second part is from Psalm 109, 8. Both of these, again, are about the psalmist who is undergoing oppression. So that, again, we have this, this same situation that the oppression of the psalmist foreshadows uh, what happens um, uh, with, um, with Judas. And when I say the oppression, those... <laughs> It's those oppressing the psalmist uh, who are said in the psalm to suffer uh, this fate. And it's, a, it's a, a prayer here 
And, uh, and so that becomes uh, not only what happens uh, to the um, persecutor of the psalmist, but also it foreshadows uh, the persecutor of Jesus. And notice verse 21, it is therefore necessary, the word day, Delta Epsilon Iota is used there for necessary. This is a prophetic necessary. Why is it necessary? Because it was prophesied. It's necessary that the men who have accompanied us all the time, Lord Jesus went in and out among us, uh, that someone take that person's office. And that's why the end of verse uh, 20 says, let his office another man take. Um, and so, uh, again, that's, that's speaking of uh, one who had wrongly oppressed, who should lose his position. Um, and so that, that position then to fit, that has to be filled. And so um, uh, that filling is, is even a prophetic necessity um, because someone had to fill it, according to the Psalms. Uh, it, was, it was filled by someone else in the Psalm. Now that foreshadows it being filled again. Um, now, if we turn also with me to Luke 22, 22, let's come back to Luke. We're going to look at some synoptic passages again. Luke 22, 22. Luke 22, 22, for indeed the Son of Man is going as it has been written as it has been uh, determined, but woe to that man through whom he is betrayed. Here, this is obviously talking about why, why is it, uh, why has it been determined? Uh, because of what we've been talking about with these Psalms uh, about the betrayer or the persecutor of David or the Psalmist, uh, these things foreshadow what would happen to the Son of Man. So it's been determined. But woe to that man through whom he is betrayed. By the way, it's very interesting. You have divine sovereignty here, yet accountability. God's absolutely sovereign. And yet Judas is completely accountable. We don't know how those, I mean, there's no way we can fathom every way everything in scripture. That is one of the uh, uh, mysteries in scripture. By the way, I don't think it is uh, a tension between um God prophesying and being sovereign, and Judas, by his absolutely independent uh, human will, separate from God, autonomously acting, that that's, that that's the tension. Somehow, Judas can make an independent decision, and God is sovereign. I don't think that's the mystery. I think the mystery is that God is sovereign. That's why Judas did what he did, but Judas is accountable. So it's accountability. It's going to sovereignty and accountability, not going to sovereignty and and, and uh, autonomy, independent autonomy. Uh, and the scriptures uh, posit that again and again. Um, for example, uh, Acts, Acts chapter, uh, it's Acts chapter four uh, makes the same kind of uh, statement. Um, It says in verse 27, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you did anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And that 
That develops, in fact, chapter 2, where in verse 23, this man, Jesus, determined by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of wicked men or um, uh, godless men. So that it was a predetermined plan, but those who did it were godless. They're accountable for being uh, uh, ungodly. That's the mystery. We preach God's sovereignty and we fully believe people are really accountable. We don't understand the, the, the full reason for that. Um, so as we look also at um, Mark 14, 21, Mark 14, 21, There again, we have for the Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him, woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Likewise, Matthew 26. Matthew 26. And verse 24. The Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him, but woe to that man through whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Again, it's a parallel. Um, and now notice um, what Matthew says later. Um, in verse 54, after he has been captured, he says, how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen this way? And verse 56, all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets must be fulfilled. Uh, so remember, that's when the disciple, he's captured, the disciples are scattered. Well, notice that one of the scriptures, notice he says scriptures, plural, had to be fulfilled. Well, certainly one of them is earlier uh, in this very chapter in verse 31, where it says, then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night it is written, quote, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. Now that is from Zechariah 13, 7. And so when they are scattered, he refers generally, but all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. So we can see that even though there's not a fulfillment formula to that statement in Zechariah, uh, I'm sorry, in um, Matthew 26, 31, that uh, it is uh, a prophecy. And uh, in, in Zechariah, it's a direct verbal prophecy. And uh, even though it is a direct verbal prophecy, there's no fulfillment formula, but it should be taken as fulfilling that direct uh, verbal prophecy. Um, now, um, I want to look at some uh, other types that uh, don't necessarily have formulas. I'd, I'd like you to look with me at 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. When are we supposed to break at this point? Anybody remember? I'm going to have a 10 minute break, probably a little bit after three. So at three, 10 minute break? Okay, yeah. thank you. All right. Um, 
1 Corinthians 15. Look with me at verse 3. I'd like somebody to read verses 3, um, 3 to 4. Who could read 15, 3 to 4? Uh, yeah, please. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Okay. Now it says, not only was he, uh, did he die according to the scriptures and was buried, uh, there, uh, most commentators think here we're at least thinking of uh, Isaiah 53, um, verses 5 to 12. But it says he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. I like to ask my students here uh, to come up with passages where it says that. Where does it say that the Messiah would be raised in three days? We will see the light of life in Jesus Christ. Um, are you thinking there of the end of Isaiah 53? Okay, you're right. Yeah, it does say that. Um, it doesn't say he'll be raised there. Uh, it, it does say he will see his inheritance. And I, th I think it's implied there. I, I, I think the resuscitation, i.e., living again of the, of the dead servant is implied there um but but not not explicit resurrection or three days psalm 16 what are you thinking of there yeah that's psalm 16 and, and it's quoted in acts chapter one um but it doesn't say resurrection or we got we to get the three days in here somewhere yeah, well, Christ actually mentions that in the Gospels, so that's certainly a live uh, prospect. So, um, yeah, you know, just as Jonah uh, was in the belly uh, of the fish, three days, three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. That may be there, um, and it is talking about resurrection. Um, yeah. Um, Abraham and Isaac with reference to Hebrews where Abraham believed that in three days, well, he believed that God could raise Isaac from the dead. And it then says that on the, on the third day, um, that's the day that they went and traveled and it's our third day. So I don't know if that's a... That's a very interesting one. Um, and, and there are a number, there's actually, uh, somebody has an article on the biblical theology of three days. In, um, uh, in, in the Old Testament. It's very, very intriguing. Um, gosh, a Canadian Old Testament scholar. Ah. Can't think of his name now. But he includes a number of these. I think that that, that is one of them. Um, so that could be in the background. Um, yeah. I think so. That's one that might even uh, be more in focus than Jonah. I think Jonah is in focus, but I think that uh, uh, um, our passage in, in Hosea, chapter 6, is, is uh, just as likely a candidate. Um, even more, and here's why I'll tell you. 
Come, let us return to the Lord, for he's torn us, he will heal us, he's wounded us, he'll bandage us. He will revive us after, literally in Hebrew, after days. And then I think it's clarified, he'll raise us up on the third day. English translations have two days. Uh, in Hebrew, as I recollect, it's he will raise us up, he will revive us after days. He'll raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. And so here it's, it's talking about uh, uh, the third day being raised up. I mean, that's pretty amazing. He will raise us up on the third day. Um, and, but the word in Greek is uh, anhistomy for raise up, whereas the word in 1 Corinthians is a, a gero. In other words, they're different Greek words, but the, the word in uh, uh, 1 Corinthians, maybe this may be a translation from the Hebrew text. It's just as viable as uh, the translation um, that the Greek text has of Hosea here. And so um, we, may have a we may have a direct, almost a quotation. He will raise us up on the third day. However, notice it's plural. He raised us up. It's not the Messiah. Um, but this is the only place where you've got third day and live. Now, there, there, there's one other place, well, actually two other places. One is with uh, Joseph and his brothers, where uh, he says after three days, he'll get out of prison and live. And there's another place with Hezekiah as well. But they're, they're not as close as this. And so I would say this is a candidate for probably an illusion that's more in focus even than, um, than, than Jonah. And what's interesting about it, if it is an illusion, I think it is, um, then Jesus is seen as true Israel rising from the dead. This is about the restoration of Israel, okay? The, the text in Hosea. Jesus, the resurrection is the restoration of, of Jesus, as I've been arguing. And um, so this is a, a beautiful case of the one and the many. Uh, what, what's true of them will be true of him, but actually what becomes true of him initially will be true of all those in solidarity and union with him. So, um, but um, th this is a passage, it may be uh, typological, uh, if this refers to the restoration that was fulfilled partially when they went to Babylon, uh, and then that fulfillment, that partial fulfillment, because it wasn't fully fulfilled, as we're going to see, points forward to the greater uh, resurrection uh, of, Jesus, uh, of Jesus Christ. Um, I, I tend to think this is a case where it's more of a... Uh, I think this is more of a direct verbal prophecy of Israel's restoration that's fulfilled in Jesus. So even though I'm talking about typology here, it's possible. I think probably we have more direct prophecy. Yes. So, so can I just talk about, are you suggesting that typologically the exile and the return from exile prefigures Christ's death and resurrection? Uh, uh, prefiguring the uh, exile and restoration that he would bring about. Yeah that his exile was at the cross and that that was the epitome of, of true Israel's exile and that the exile of Babylon was physical uh, because it, they weren't all unbelievers there. there. There were a remnant of believers. So they're physically apart from uh, uh, 
you know, the temple and the, and the promise and the Holy Land. Uh, and then Jesus, that points to Jesus, I think, his, um, uh, his greater exile from God. And when he overcomes it by resurrection, he's being restored to God. Though in this case, I do think it's uh, a direct verbal prophecy. I'm going to uh, talk more about your question, though, um, with regard to the exile. I'm not finished talking about that, but I don't want to bring it down at this point. Um, another text that I think is uh, probably, yes. Great point about in the Hebrew, I think in that text, um, the Hebrew word is in Judah, which I think is what translated to Dennis Jeremiah. Yeah, that's why it's Judas and then almost like this. The Mayan? Which is the dual form. You just said it yeah. one days, but I think it's if it's the dual. Yeah. That means two. Okay. Okay. Um, I'll go back and look at that. Thank you. Um, Okay, uh, let's look at Romans 3.25. Romans 3.25. Here we have a classic text speaking of Christ whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed. Now, notice that word there, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. Now, some translate that as a propitiatory sacrifice. Some translate it as uh, um, a sacrifice of atonement. Um, but the actual word is hilasterion in Greek, hilasterion. And uh, if you look that up in the LXX, it occurs a lot, especially in the Pentateuch, uh, somewhat very few times in Ezekiel. But in the Pentateuch, it's always without exception referring to the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And actually, I think this is a case where we really ought to translate it that way, that that, that, that he was the propitiatory in the sense of the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And, and instead of really using propitiation and these kind of terms that people don't know uh, uh, what it is, much less perhaps they can't even pronounce it. Um, uh, wow, just straightforwardly say Jesus became the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And what does that mean? You get to explain it then. So you have a picture, you explain it, what happened then? Well, the blood was sprinkled on it, the Day of Atonement. It represented the place where God's wrath occurred in place of the people. Now it points to Jesus. He's the place that sprinkles his own blood, and he's the place where God's wrath occurs in substitution for the people. Is that just an illustration um, or an analogical use of the Old Testament? I think it's probably typological here because um, uh, verse 21 says, uh, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested 
being witnessed by the law and the prophets. And so what he's going to talk about here is something that's been witnessed by the law and the prophets. And uh, this atonement here is one of those things. So um, it, it actually also is, is, is saying that um, at the cross was the holy of holies. Jesus was a temple being crucified at the cross. It's amazing. Um, so uh, let's see. Um, yeah. I've already talked about 1 Corinthians 10. I've talked about Romans 5, 14. We won't do that. So uh, what, we, what we've done so far is we have um, talked about um, the definition of typology and uh, the distinction between typology and verbal prophecy. That's the what I've been doing so far, just giving examples. And, and sometimes it's, it may be hard to know, but usually you can distinguish. The third one is a difficult topic too. The distinction in scripture between a type, an allegory, and a symbol. Um, so here, here's my definition of allegory. We have to try to define our terms in this discussion. Allegory, and again, I mentioned that it comes from two words, alos and uh, agoret, agaruo, uh, literally other proclaim, proclaiming another meaning, to speak other than what is said. We expand on that, to speak other than what is said. That is to speak other than what the authority of intention is. That's allegory. Here, the historicity of the text is secondary. It doesn't matter. And uh, even when historicity is assumed, an, allegor uh, an allegorizing author reads in outrageous ideas. Uh, in the case of Philo, they're often based on Greek philosophy. Um, but to give an illustration, let's take the, the case where God uh, uh, covered Adam and Eve with skins. Uh, to allegorize that, um, Christian uh, Greek philosopher might say, well, uh, that represents the enlightenment of Greek philosophy that covers uh, over the ignorance uh, of the believer, something like that. What you're doing is you're uh, taking something from your modern situation and reading it into the scripture. For example, I think that's what's happening in Revelation 9, which describes these locusts, and they have uh, the face of a man here like a woman. Uh, they have breastplate of iron, uh, and they make a very loud noise. They have stingers in their tails, and they harm people with them. And so some have said, uh, even some uh, who, who teach on the seminary level, has said these represent a military helicopters. Yeah. I think it's an example. I think it's an example of reading something from the modern world into the text. It's a classic example, I think. Um, even if I were a dispensationalist, I don't think I would take that view. Um, but if you look at Revelation, you look at the margins in Revelation, uh, 
Revelation actually directs you back to the Old Testament instead of directing you immediately to the future. So to interpret that that image, you've got to go back first before you go to the future, if you think it's about the future or to the present. Um, let me give you some more examples of allegory because I think we need to get that clear in our mind. Um, and these are from Philo, the great allegorist from Alexandria who lived. He might have met Jesus, who knows? Might have walked the streets of Jerusalem though he lived in Alexandria. Uh, he gives an interpretation of Genesis 14, 8 through 9. I'd like somebody to read that for us. Genesis um, chapter 14, 8 through 9. Thank you. And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adnan, the king of Savoyim, the king of Gilan, and so on, went out and joined together in battle in the battle of Sidon against Hedalahoma, the king of Elam, Tidal, king of nations, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elasan, four kings against Tobiah. Okay. Now here's what uh, Philo says. Uh, the four, four of the kings signify our passions, pleasure, desire, fear, and grief. The other five kings represent our five senses, equal in, in number because they rule over us. The five are subject to the four and pay them tribute. So from our senses arise the passions of pleasure and fear. So he's kind of reading the, the, the ethical values of uh, Greek philosophy in, into the meaning of uh, who these kings are. That's a classic example of um, uh, allegorization. And by the way, uh, Philo would often quote the literal meaning. He says, well, this is what the passage means. So he, does, he is a literal interpreter. He can be. But then he'll say, but the, more, the deeper meaning is this, and, uh, which, which he feels is really the, the, the more important meaning. Now, another uh, example of uh, allegorization is uh, in Genesis 3, 8 through 18, where Philo says that man is allegorical. He represents the rational mind. Woman represents the senses. The serpent means pleasure, and the wild animals are the passions. Um, again, reading the, the ethical um, values of, of, of uh, Greek philosophy into in Genesis. Um, and uh, if I was not the only one, uh, Christians can do the same thing. Listen to uh, Augustine's allegorization um, of the ark. Uh, he says that the um, dimensions of Noah's ark, its length, six times its breadth from side to side, 10 times its thickness are the same as the dimensions of the human body. And then concludes that the ark symbolizes the body of Christ. When he compares the door on the ark side to the spear wound inflicted on Jesus, tells us that the wood anticipates Christ's cross. Augustine reasons further that the church is the body of Christ, and so other details of the ark's blueprint preview aspects of the church. The three levels inside the ark symbolize Noah's 
three sons from whom all humanity came after the flood. The three harvests in the gospel, 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold, um, are somehow uh, related uh, to the dimensions of, of the ark. Uh, also, the three parts of the ark are related to uh, sexual purity among church members, marriage in the basement, widowhood on the middle level, and virginity on the top story. Um, so, I mean, Augustine, and, and he says, he doesn't say it definitely means it's all these things, we, we, this may be the case. He kind of puts it that way. Um, it's in a slightly different sense that it has a biblical pattern or beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Unlike Philo, who's just importing, you know, various things from outside. Yeah, he's trying, he is trying to interpret redemptive historically. And I think this would be my opinion. I think it all starts from 1 Peter 3, where in fact 1 Peter does relate baptism to the flood so, so certainly a biblical basis for doing that i just think he goes a little bit crazy and uh, and wild in doing it um, now let, i i do think for example that um th there are two or three scholars uh who argue <laughs> that the three parts of the ark are related to the three parts of the garden of eden the three sections of Sinai, tabernacle, and the three sections of the temple. Now, I think there's something to that. Uh, I'm not going to go further, but but I think there's a, a way to actually show that that may be the case. Uh, in fact, the, the Greek word for ark is the same Greek word for the ark of the covenant, which is very interesting. So it may be that the ark is the temporary um, dwelling place of God uh, during during the time of the flood. And so it's described in, in, in some ways as a, a temple. For, for example, it's the first place where distinction point between clean and unclean animals are made as they enter the ark. That only occurs later at the temple. It's the, in, in fact, uh, the only time you find specific multiple dimensions tends to be with structures like temples in the Old Testament. So there, there are ways to uh, actually demonstrate the symbolism. Uh, Augustine doesn't do that. Um, so could he be right? All things are possible, but I don't think it's probable. And um, what do you think of the idea um, of in Genesis 24, where the bride for Isaac in some way picturing is what the bride finding a bride for Isaac in some way picturing the father finding a bride for his son. You heard that? Um, not sure if I've heard that. I may have heard that, but um, I don't remember everything I hear. So um, <laughs> it sounds a little familiar. I, I would have to really, you know, think about that and study that further, see if that's the case. Um, uh, it does bring to mind, however, uh, the Joseph story. A lot of people think Joseph is a type. I was dubious for a while until I read a dissertation on uh, uh, the typology of Joseph uh, published by um, uh, a guy from Southern Seminary, and uh, it's, it's now been published in Don Carson's series, uh, you know, that Silver series, and, and I think he's right. I think that um, uh, Joseph is a type, and he really demonstrates it very well. 
So I wouldn't be surprised that you could demonstrate uh, that, but uh, I haven't worked with that to be confident to say yes or no. Um, okay, um, so let's, uh, let's move on and, and we could, um, we could say here, if we, if we look at typology, um, uh, I wanted to have this change real quick and then we're going to have to change back. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, this, this chart was produced by Edmund Clowney in one of his works and repeated. Uh, in, in, a, in a work that I, I published called The Right Doctrine from the Wrong Text. But it's just kind of a chart putting it all together. So what we have here is the event in the Old Testament. And, um, and then what we have down here is the symbolic meaning of the event, S. And here we have the history of redemption going from old to new. And uh, if you were to allegorize the event, you would go from the present to the past, as we've been talking about, whether it's war helicopters interpreting the locusts or whatever. Um, now, I haven't mentioned moralism yet. Moralism is when you just directly go from, uh, this, is, for example, this is moralistic preaching, for example, when you go from uh, an event and directly apply it to someone's behavior, like um, uh, David's, um, uh, da da David uh, stoning uh, Goliath and uh, to say little boys shouldn't be bullies or something like that, you know, some sort of pedantic moralistic statement about how this relates to little boys or young people or something like that. Uh, but what you need to do is you, you need to see the symbolic meaning of it and, uh, and then see how it relates to redemptive history, the way we've been talking about those five points of the definition of typology. Um, so that's a chart. I, I hope that puts things together a, a little bit more. Um, okay. Um, one thing, um, just, just a comment on, on the uh, coverings. I, I, I didn't mention that um, uh, I explained what allegory was, uh, reading in another meaning. Um, to understand the covering of the skin symbolically, you would teach, yes, history is not secondary. It's key, and it teaches a moral truth. That's what a symbol would be, a, a historical fact that that has a meaning. And uh, we, we can call that a symbol uh, so that the event conveys a meaning, it symbolizes something. Uh, so take Adam and Eve again, the fall really did happen. God really did give them skins <laughs> historically. Again, history is key and uppermost. And it symbolized the moral truth of forgiveness with the covering for sin, because presumably God uh, killed an animal. It represented uh, uh, substitutionary sacrifices in the Old Testament. Um, so that the moral truth is derived from the literal historical meaning. So that that, that would be uh, 
a symbolical interpretation of Genesis um, chapter three. To see it as a type, it, you would say, yes, it's a historical fact, and yes, it teaches a moral truth, and it foreshadows. So that the covering of skins, yes, uh, it happened, it, it, it teaches the moral truth of, uh, of covering for sin, and it pointed to Christ's uh, provision, covering our sin. So that, that would be kind of the way to distinguish allegory, symbolism, and typology. Now, again, uh, we're going to look at... Um, got Roman numeral four here, and I really have already discussed it. Roman numeral four would be essential characteristics of a type. We've already talked about that. We don't need to talk about it. Um, and so I'm going to move to Roman numeral five. Roman numeral five is the theological basis for typology, the theological basis for, for typology. And uh, there are three. Number one, the sovereignty of God. This is essential. God is so sovereignly planned and purposed history so that the patterns of past things will occur again, but on a grander scale. So he sovereignly designed and planned and purposed history so that the patterns of past things will occur again, but on a grander scale. And this partly accounts for the unity in history. Um, so, so the way he's planned things is cyclical. Now, uh, Greek history is, is, is just purely cyclical. It just goes around and around. It doesn't progress. Biblical history is cyclical, beginning with small circles, getting bigger, but they're progressing along a horizontal line. So it's cyclical, but progressing. And God has planned that it be cyclical so that the earlier events would uh, uh, occur in an escalated way and later similar events foreshadowed by the earlier events. So sovereignty of God. Secondly, the immutability of God. Since God is unchangeable, he reveals himself in the Old Testament, uh, acting by principles and ways that are unchangeable and eternal. So of course, there's going to be a similarity of events because he deals with people according to the same principles of his unchanging being. And that also provides unity to history. So the repetition of similar acts by God in history point to consistency in his dealings because God works by the unchanging nature of his being. And finally, the third theological point that undergirds typology is the wisdom of God displayed in God's working out a unified purpose throughout history. What, sorry? The wisdom of God is uh, God displays um, his wisdom by working out a unified purpose throughout history. A wisdom, Paul says, the rulers of the world do not understand because there's a lot of irony involved in his plan. Some things happen unexpectedly from the human being's point. So we can say Roman numeral six. Roman numeral six. 
Typology is a divine philosophy of history. You've always heard, you know, some people take courses, I took a course in college called philosophy of history. Um, typology is a divine philosophy of history. It's planned history with a unified purpose so that what God has done in the past becomes the measure of the future. In fact, the Jews always remembered certain events in their history. Uh, they, they remembered uh, Adam, uh, they remembered Noah, call of Abraham, the Exodus and David's reign. They would continually remember those things. And um, this is because they believed that the way God acted in those situations, he would act again. I think that's probably why they uh, celebrated the Passover, because they believed the way God acted with Israel in the Exodus, he will act again toward us. And actually, the Lord's Supper plays a similar role as we remember uh, Christ's death, and yet it also reminds us he's coming again. Um, now, Roman numeral seven, I'm going to title typological fulfillments within the Old Testament itself. Uh, but I'm going to address that a little later. Typological fulfillments within the Old Testament itself. Um, but I'm going to skip it now because it's going to come later. Roman numeral eight uh, is just a way to categorize some of the types. Um, and we could, we could categorize them in this way, categories. Uh, we could say a typology of persons. For example, Christ is a new Moses, a new David, a new Melchizedek, last Adam. Um, likewise, we could have a typology of events. Typology of the Exodus, of creation, of the brazen serpent, of the temple. Or we could have a typology of things. Um, and here I, I, I really meant the reserve brazen serpent and temple, new manna there. Uh, typology of things would be the brazen serpent, manna, new temple, tabernacle. Typology of events is Exodus creation. Um, Etc. Um, Roman numeral nine, I have titled Antithetical Typological Fulfillment or Ironic Typology, which I've already talked about. So now we're going to come uh, to what the fellow in uh, Jerusalem was asking about criteria for discerning types, not mentioned in the New Testament. So this is really what we want to look at. It's a good time to break. Is that right? Good time to break.